Chapter eighty two, part one of Barney the Vampire, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Barney the Vampire, volume two, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter eighty two, part one. Charles Holland's pursuit of the vampire, the dangerous interview. It will be recollected that the admiral had made a remark about Charles Holland having suddenly disappeared, and it is for us now to account for that disappearance, and to follow him to the pathway he had chosen. The fact was that he, when Barney fired the shot at the doctor, or what was the supposed shot, was the farthest from the vampire, and he, on that very account, had the clearest and best opportunity of marking which route he took when he had discharged the pistol. He was not confused by the smoke as the others were, nor was he stunned by the noise of the discharge, but he distinctly saw Varney dart across one of the garden beds and make for the summer house, instead of for the garden gate, as Henry had supposed was the most probable path he had chosen. Now Charles Holland either had an inclination, or some reasons of his own, to follow the vampire alone, or, on the spur of the moment, he had not time to give an alarm to the others but certain it is that he did, unaided, rush after him. He saw him enter the summer-house, and pass out of it again at the back portion of it, as he had once before done when surprised in his interview with Flora. But the vampire did not now, as he had done on the former occasion, hide immediately behind the summer-house. He seemed to be well aware that that expedient would not answer twice, so he at once sped onwards, clearing the garden fence, and taking to the meadows. It formed evidently no part of the intentions of Charles Holland to come up with him. He was resolved upon dogging his footsteps to know where he would go, so that he might have a knowledge of his hiding-place if he had one. I must and will, said Charles to himself, penetrate the mystery that hangs about this most strange and inexplicable being. I will have an interview with him, not in hostility, for I forgive him the evil he has done me, but with a kindly spirit and I will ask him to confide in me. Charles, therefore, did not keep so close upon the heels of the vampire as to excite any suspicions of his intention to follow him, but he waited by the garden paling long enough, not only for Varney to get some distance off, but long enough likewise to know that the pistol which had been fired at the doctor had produced no real bad effects, except singeing some curious tufts of hair upon the sides of his face, which the doctor was pleased to call whiskers. I thought as much, was Charles' exclamation when he heard the doctor's voice. It would have been strikingly at variance with all Varney's other conduct if he had committed such a deliberate and heartless murder. Then, as the form of the vampire could be but dimly seen, Charles ran on for some distance in the direction he had taken, and then paused again, so that if Varney heard the sound of footsteps and paused to listen, they had ceased again probably, and nothing was discernible. In this manner he followed the mysterious individual, if we may really call him such, for above a mile, and then Varney made a rapid detour and took his way towards the town. He went onwards with wonderful precision now in a right line, not stopping at any obstruction in the way of fences, hedges, or ditches, so that it took Charles some exertion, to which just then he was scarcely equal, to keep up with him. At length the outskirts of the town were gained, and then Varney paused and looked around him, scarcely allowing Charles, who was now closer to him than he had been, time to hide himself from observation, which, however, he did accomplish, 
by casting himself suddenly upon the ground, so that he could not be detected against the sky, which then formed a background to the spot where he was. Apparently satisfied that he had completely now eluded pursuit, if any had been attempted, of those whom he had left in such a state of confusion, the vampire walked hastily towards a house which was to let, and which was only to be reached by going up an avenue of trees, and then unlocking a gate in the wall which bounded the premises next to the avenue. But the vampire appeared to be possessed of every faculty for effecting an entrance to the place, and, producing from his pocket a key, he at once opened the gate, and disappeared within the precincts of those premises. He, no doubt, felt that he was hunted by the mob of the town, and hence his frequent change of residence, since his own had been burnt down, and, indeed, situated as he was, there can be no manner of doubt that he would have been sacrificed to the superstitious fury of the populace, if they could but have got hold of him. He had, from his knowledge, which was no doubt accurate and complete, of what had been done, a good idea of what his own fate would be, were he to fall into the hands of that ferocious multitude, each individual composing which felt a conviction that there would be no peace, nor hope of prosperity or happiness, in the place until he, the arch-vampire of all the supposed vampires, was destroyed. Charles did pause for a few moments, after having thus become housed, to consider whether he should then attempt to have the interview he had resolved upon having, by some means or another, or defer it, now that he knew where Varney was to be found, until another time. But when he came to consider how extremely likely it was that, even in the course of a few hours, Varney might shift his abode for some good and substantial reasons, he at once determined upon attempting to see him. But how to accomplish such a purpose was not the easiest question in the world to answer. If he rung the bell that presented itself above the garden gate, was it at all likely that Varney, who had come there for concealment, would pay any attention to the summons? After some consideration, he did, however, think of a plan by which, at all events, he could ensure effecting an entrance into the premises, and then he would take his chance of finding the mysterious being whom he sought, and who probably might have no particular objection to meeting with him, Charles Holland, because their last interview in the ruins could not be said to be otherwise than of a peaceable and calm enough character. He saw by the board which was nailed in front of the house that all applications to see it were to be made to a Mr. Nash, residing close at hand, and, as Charles had the appearance of a respectable person, he thought he might possibly have the key entrusted to him, ostensibly to look at the house, preparatory possibly to taking it, and so he should, at all events, obtain admission. He, accordingly, went at once to this Mr. Nash, and asked about the house. Of course he had to affect an interest in its rental and accommodations, which he did not feel, in order to lull any suspicion, and finally he said, I should like to look over it if you would lend me the key, which I will shortly bring back to you. There was an evident hesitation about the agent when this proposal was communicated by Charles Holland, and he said, I dare say, sir, you wonder that I don't say yes at once. But the fact is, there came a gentleman here one day when I was out and got a key, for we have two to open the house, from my wife, and he never came back again that this was the means by which Varney the vampire had obtained the key, by the aid of which Charles had seen him effect so immediate an entrance into the house, there could be no doubt. "'How long ago were you served that trick?' he said. "'About two days ago, sir.' 
Well, it only shows how, when one person acts wrongly, another is at once suspected of a capability to do likewise. There is my name and address. I should like rather to go alone to see the house, because I always fancy I can judge better by myself of the accommodation, and I can stay as long as I like, and ascertain the sizes of all the rooms, without the disagreeable feeling upon my mind, which no amount of complacence on your part could ever get me over, that I was most unaccountably detaining somebody from more important business of their own. Oh, I assure you, sir, said Mr. Nash, that I should not be at all impatient, but if you would rather go alone, indeed I would. Oh, then, sir, here is the key. A gentleman who leaves his name and address, of course, we can have no objection to. I only told you of what happened, sir, in the mere way of conversation, and I hope you won't imagine for a moment that I meant to insinuate that you were going to keep the key. Oh, certainly not, certainly not, said Charles, who was only too glad to get the key upon any terms. You are quite right, and I beg you will say no more about it. I quite understand. He then walked off to the empty house again, and, proceeding to the avenue, he fitted the key to the lock, and had the satisfaction of finding the gate instantly yield to him. When he passed through it and closed the door after him, which he did carefully, he found himself in a handsomely laid-out garden, and saw the house a short distance in front of him, standing upon a well-got-up lawn. He cared not if Barney should see him before he reached the house, because the fact was sufficiently evident to himself that after all he could not actually force an interview with the vampire. He only hoped that as he had found him out it would be conceded to him. He therefore walked up the lawn without making the least attempt at concealment, and when he reached the house he allowed his footsteps to make what noise they would upon the stone steps which led up to it. But no one appeared, nor was there, either by sight or by sound, any indication of the presence of any living being in the place besides himself. Insensibly, as he contemplated the deserted place around him, the solemn sort of stillness began to have its effect upon his imagination, and, without being aware that he did so, he had, with softness and caution, glided onwards, as if he were bent on some errand requiring the utmost amount of caution and discrimination in the conduction of it. And so he entered the hall of the house, where he stood some time, and listened with the greatest attention, without, however, being able to hear the least sound throughout the whole of the house. And yet he must be here, thought Charles to himself. I was not gone many minutes, and it is extremely unlikely that in so short a space of time he has left, after taking so much trouble, by making such a detour around the meadows to get here, without being observed. I will examine every room in the place, but I will find him. Charles immediately commenced going from room to room of that house in his search for the vampire. There were but four apartments upon the ground floor, and these, of course, he quickly ran through. Nothing whatever at all indicative of any one having been there met his gaze, and with a feeling of disappointment creeping over him, he commenced the ascent of the staircase. The day had now fairly commenced, so that there was an abundance of light, although even for the country it was an early hour, and probably Mr. Nash had not been a little surprised to have a call from one whose appearance bespoke no necessity for rising with the lark at such an hour. All these considerations, however, sank into insignificance in Charles's mind, compared with the object he had in view, namely, the unraveling the many mysteries that hung around that man. He ascended to the landing of the first story, and then, as he could have no choice, he opened the first door that his eyes fell upon, 
and entered a tolerably large apartment. It was quite destitute of furniture, and at the moment Charles was about to pronounce it empty, but then his eyes fell upon a large black-looking bundle of something, that seemed to be lying jammed up under the window on the floor, that being the place of all others in the room which was enveloped in the most shadow. He started back involuntarily at the moment, for the appearance was one so shapeless that there was no such thing as defining, even from that distance, what it really was. Then he slowly and cautiously approached it, as we always approach that of the character of which we are ignorant, and concerning the powers of which to do injury we can consequently have no defined idea. That it was a human form there was the first tangible opinion he had about it, and from its profound stillness, in the manner in which it seemed to be laid close under the window, he thought that he was surely upon the point of finding out that some deed of blood had been committed, the unfortunate victim of which was now lying before him. Upon a nearer examination, he found that the whole body, including the greater part of the head and face, was wrapped in a large cloak, and there, as he gazed, he soon found cause to correct his first opinion as to the form belonging to the dead, for he could distinctly hear the regular breathing as of someone in a sound and dreamless sleep. Closer he went, and closer still. Then, as he clasped his hands, he said, in a voice scarcely above a whisper, It is, it is the vampire. Yes, there could be no doubt of the fact. It was Sir Francis Varney who lay there, enveloped in the huge horseman's cloak, in which, on two or three occasions during the progress of this narrative, he has figured. There he lay, at the mercy completely of any arm that might be raised against him, apparently so overcome by fatigue that no ordinary noise would have awakened him. Well might Charles Holland gaze at him with mingled feelings. There lay the being who had done almost enough to drive the beautiful Flora Bannerworth distracted, the being who had compelled the Bannerworth family to leave their ancient house, to which they had been bound by every description of association, the same mysterious existence, too, who, the better to carry on his plots and plans, had, by dint of violence, immured him, Charles, in a dungeon, and loaded him with chains. There he lay sleeping, and at his mercy. "'Shall I awaken him,' said Charles, "'or let him sleep off the fatigue, which, no doubt, is weighing down his limbs, and setting heavily on his eyelids? No, my business with him is too urgent.' He then raised his voice and cried, "'Varney, Varney, awake!' The sound disturbed, without altogether breaking up, the deep slumber of the vampire, and he uttered a low moan and moved one hand restlessly. Then, as if that disturbance of the calm and deep repose which had sat upon him had given at once the rein to fancy, he began to mutter strange words in his sleep, some of which could be heard by Charles distinctly, while others were too incoherently uttered to be clearly understood. "'Where is it?' he said. "'Where, where hidden? Pull the house down!' Murder! No, 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 no murder! I will not, I dare not! Blood enough is upon my hands! The money! The money! Down, villains! Down! Down! What these incoherent words alluded to specifically, Charles, of course, could not have the least idea, but he listened attentively, with a hope that something might fall from his lips that would afford a key to some of the mysterious circumstances with which he was so intimately connected. Now, however, there was a longer silence than before, only broken occasionally by low moans. But suddenly, as Charles was thinking of again speaking, he uttered some more disjointed sentences. 
No harm, he said. No harm. Marchdale is a villain. Not a hair of his head injured. No, no, set him free. Yes, I will set him free. Beware, beware, Marchdale. And you, Mortimer. The scaffold, ay, the scaffold. But where is the bright gold? The memory of the deed of blood will not cling to it. Where is it hidden? The gold, the gold, the gold. It is not in the grave. It cannot be there. No, 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 not there, not there. Load the pistols. There, there. Down, villain, down, down, down. Despairing now of obtaining anything like tangible information from these ravings, which, even if they did by accident, so connect themselves together as to seem to mean something, Charles again cried aloud, Varney, awake, awake! But, as before, the sleeping man was sufficiently deaf to the cry to remain, with his eyes closed, still in a disturbed slumber, but yet a slumber which might last for a considerable time. I have heard, said Charles, that there are many persons whom no noise will waken, which the slightest touch arouses them in an instant. I will try that upon this slumbering being. As he spoke, he advanced close to Sir Francis Varney, and touched him lightly with the toe of his boot. The effect was as startling as it was instantaneous. The vampire sprang to his feet, as he had been suddenly impelled up by some powerful machinery, and, casting his cloak away from his arms, so as to have them at liberty, he sprang upon Charles Holland, and hurled him to the ground, where he held him in a giant's gripe as he cried, "'Rash fool, be you whom you may! Why have you troubled me to rid the world of your intrusive existence?' The attack was so sudden and so terrific, that resistance to it, even if Charles had had the power, was out of the question. All he could say was, "'Varney, Varney, do you not know me? I am Charles Holland. Will you now, in your mad rage, take the life you might more easily have taken when I lay in the dungeon from which you released me?' The sound of his voice at once convinced Sir Francis Varney of his identity, and it was with a voice that had some tones of regret in it that he replied, "'And wherefore have you thought proper, when you were once free and unscathed, to cast yourself into such a position of danger as to follow me to my haunt. I contemplated no danger, said Charles, because I contemplated no evil. I do not know why you should kill me. You came here, and yet you say you do not know why I should kill you. Young man, have you a dozen lives that you can afford to tamper with them thus? I have, at much chance of imminence to myself, already once saved you, when another, with a sterner feeling, would have gladly taken your life. But now, as if you were determined to goad me to an act which I have shunned committing, you will not let me close my eyes in peace. Take you hand off my throat, Varney, and I will then tell you what brought me here. Sir Francis Varney did so. Rise, he said, rise, I have seen blood enough to be sickened at the prospect of more, but you should not have come here and tempted me. Nay, believe me, I came here for good and not for evil. Sir Francis Varney, hear me out, and then judge for yourself whether you can blame the perseverance which enabled me to find out this secret place of refuge. But let me first say that now it is as good a place of concealment to you as before it was, for I shall not betray you. Go on, go on, what is you desire? During the long and weary hours of my captivity, I thought deeply and painfully too, as may be well imagined, of all the circumstances connected with your appearance at Bannerworth Hall, and your subsequent conduct. When I felt convinced that there was something far more than met the eye in the whole affair, and, from what I have been informed of since, 
I am the more convinced that some secret, some mystery, which it is in your power only, perhaps, to explain, lurks at the bottom of all your conduct. Well, proceed, said Varney. Have I not said enough now to enable you to divine the object of my visit? It is that you should shake off the trammels of mystery in which you have shrouded yourself, and declare what it is you want, what it is you desire, that has induced you to set yourself up such a determined foe to the Bannerworth family. And that, you say, is the modest request that brings you here? You speak as though you thought it was idle curiosity that prompts me, but you know it is not. Your language and manner are those of a man of too much sagacity not to see that I have higher notions. Name them. You have yourself, in more than one instance, behaved with a strange sort of romantic generosity, as if, but for some great object which you felt impelled to seek by any means and at any sacrifice, you would be something in character and conduct very different from what you are. One of my objects, then, is to awaken that better nature which is slumbering within you, only now and then arousing itself to do some deed which should be the character of all your actions. For your own sake I have come. But not wholly? Not wholly, as you say. There is another than whom the whole world is not so dear to me. That other one was serene as she was beautiful. Happiness danced in her eyes, and she ought, for not more lovely is the mind that she possesses than the glorious form that enshrines it, to be happy. Her life would have passed like one long summer's day of beauty, sunshine, and pure heavenly enjoyment. You have poisoned the cup of joy that the great god of nature had permitted her to place to her lips and taste of mistrustingly. Why have you done this? Have you said all that you came to say? I have spoken the substance of my message. Much could I elaborate upon such a theme, but it is not one, Varney, which is congenial to my heart. For your sake, however, and for the sakes of those whom I hold most dear, let me implore you to act in this matter with a kindly consideration. Proclaim your motives. You cannot say that they are not such as we may aid you in. End of chapter 82, part 1